This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. If you're feeling overwhelmed about where to put your focus right now as an activist, this show is for you. Nina Masavi is Indivisible's senior regional organizer for Washington, and she joins us to help prioritize the many things happening both at the federal and state level. That is next. We have been hearing from Indivisibles here in Washington that there is an almost overwhelming number of things that need our attention and action right now. Uh, We know that the legislative session is in its final days, so we are pushing some bills across the finish line and making sure that others go down. And then at the federal level, there are things like S-1, D.C. statehood, ending the filibuster, the Thrive Act, just on and on and on. So to help us prioritize all of this and to talk about how you can be most effective in taking action, we are joined by our dear friend Nina Masavi. She is Visible Senior Regional Organizer for Washington and California. Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, um, I have been hearing a lot of the same things, um, you know, from folks across the country. And it's it's tough because there are so many injustices that we're facing every single day. And as the activists that we are, we want to be in everything. We want to be fixing every single problem that we see. And so it's a nice opportunity to get to take a step back and say, here's what we should be prioritizing. And here is kind of the landscape of how it all is. So I'm really happy to be here with you today to talk through that. I mean, you're the best person for the job. And thank you for saying that, because I've been feeling it, too. You know, I've been feeling the sense of like, oh, I don't know where to focus. And so let's get right down to it. I want to start with what I personally see as the most consequential piece of legislation before Congress, which Mm -hmm. is S-1. This, of course, is the Senate version of the For the People Act. And, you know, with all the horrendous voting laws passing in state houses across the country, we probably don't need to go too deep on this. But just talk, in your opinion, about why this bill is so vitally important. Yeah, um, S-1 and... um you know, it's it's partner bill HR1, which is the For the People Act, is so crucial for the future of not only our elections, but our democracy. And um, anybody who's had a conversation with me ever knows that campaign finance reform is like my issue. I just think that if we fixed campaign finance reform, a lot of the other issues that we have would um, kind of fall into place. And so the For the People Act does a really good job of tackling several of the issues that we have um, on a national level with our elections and with voting rights. Um, It's broken up into several sections. Uh, The first looks at um, uh, voting rights, pretty much just like plain and simple. There are problems with voting rights across the country. There are problems with the way states are able to um, pass voting laws that make it harder for people to vote. And we're seeing it live in action in Georgia and the state legislature there. Um, It also tackles the ideas of campaign finance reform, looking at how we can do public financing for elections, make it an evil, even playing field. Um, it also looks at our disclosure laws and ensuring that we know how money is being spent and where money is coming from. And then finally, it tackles a super important issue of 
uh, transparency in not just campaigns, but in elected official offices and ensuring that money that we are paying as taxpayers um, is going to the actual legislating and the actual governing um, that we have elected these people to do and not going to other things. It's a sad reality that this is something we have to now talk about um, because of the blatant and open poor behavior of the previous administration and several offices in Congress and how they have essentially exploited taxpayer dollars for their own gain. Um, and so we believe that the For the People Act is this first step in fixing our democracy. Um, and no doubt in my mind that um, folks are fighting for it on the ground. There is bipartisan support for it um, when we're looking at the electorate. Um, when we're looking at the actual legislators, um, that's where there's a little bit more of an issue. Right. right. I mean, that was something that I was going to ask you about, because all the things that you're listing, you know, the campaign finance reform, voters rights, those things pull incredibly well, even among Republicans. So in your mind, how do you think we use that to our advantage? Yeah. So from a Washington perspective, your two senators um, are already in support of the For the People Act, which is great. And it's already passed the House. So we don't need to be talking to our members of Congress anymore, or our House representatives anymore necessarily about it. Um, you know, we're able to move on to our next democracy reform issues. But from the Senate side, across the country, the conversation has to be how does this impact everybody? Not just how does this impact Democrats? And I think um, we need to do a better job of uh, telling our story from our side and looking at how these these democracy reform issues that we are trying to fight for, they're not just for people who are registered Democrats. Um, they're for everybody. And we see it in the polling perspective with the For the People Act. The problem is um, from the Republican side, it is a loyal party. And we're not going to be able to get Republicans to be calling their Republican legislators and saying this is something you should vote for. And so really the battle becomes how do we leverage our Democratic trifecta and our majority in the Senate to pass a bill like the For the People Act that would have decades worth of impact for the future. You know, this is a It'd bill save our that democracy. I mean, that's really, really, what it's really save to do. our democracy, right? Um, and so, you know, the, the Washington senators are in on board with it. And so the thing that we now have to talk about is what are the roadblocks going to be in the Senate and how can we move past those? Well, so you're getting right to my next question, which is about the <laughs> filibuster. And, you know, uh, Cantwell has not said where she stands. Um, Murray has come very close. I think she's maybe in favor at this point of a carve out for uh, de democracy related uh, pieces of legislation. Um, I actually want to talk about a big win that just happened in California. Uh, and you, you, you can tell us all about this. Uh, Senator Feinstein actually moved under pressure on the filibuster. Yeah. Tell us what happened there. And it was under pressure yeah. from indivisibles. Yes, yeah, specifically pressure from indivisibles. So for a while now, we have been talking about filibuster reform with Senator Feinstein's office in our meetings with them. We call, we email, um, and it really wasn't getting the impact that we wanted. And that happens sometimes. Um, there are some members of Congress who they are 
kind of strict in their beliefs on something and their personal beliefs. And sometimes constituent pressure doesn't do it. We, we've seen it elsewhere too, right? Um, and so we took a new strategy. We shifted our efforts from tweeting and calling to writing letter to the editors. And um, our LTE campaign has actually been extremely successful. Um, so we started it back in late January um, when we, you know, after weeks of calling, we weren't seeing any movement with Senator Feinstein's office. Um, and we thought that maybe some pressure in the press would actually move the office. So we started the campaign and folks have been writing hundreds of letters to the editor. We have had um, letters published probably every week um, wow. since I would say early February um, in either local papers or um, national media markets like the LA Times, the San Francisco Chronicle. And what we're hearing is that that is working. So as a former congressional staffer, I wasn't in a Senate office, but I know the perspective from a House of Representatives office. Every time your boss is mentioned in a newspaper article, in a letter to the editor, in an op-ed, um, we have Google alerts that that ping to us and say, oh, your boss is mentioned. And if it's mentioned in a bad light, uh, that's not great for the office. It means we're having a meeting. It means we're having a discussion about it. And so we've been able to get stories continuously in papers across the state. And that's bringing the conversation into light every single week for their office. So Senator Feinstein went from being fully in favor of the filibuster as a tool um, for the, major the minority party to use as a, you know, a pillar of Senate procedure and whatever other, you know, talking points they use. We've seen her go from that to being open to a conversation. And now, just as recently as this week, um, we have been able to get her to commit to being in favor of not allowing the filibuster for voting rights bills. Um, so that's a huge, huge win. We're still pushing. Um, our groups did a coordinated statewide effort this last Monday as part of our week of action. And they did rallies in front of her offices across the state, was able to get a lot of press attention. And really that press attention is what has been pushing her in that, in that direction. It's such a huge win, and especially with somebody who's such an institutionalist like uh, Feinstein, to see her budge on this mm -hmm. is just, uh, I, I can't call it anything other than progress. It's fantastic. Absolutely. You know, something you mentioned with the LTEs, the letters to the editors, you've said that you think that writing for and getting uh, letters published in local papers is even more impactful than, say, like, you know, uh, the Seattle Times, San Francisco Chronicle, LA Times. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, so... Um it's great to get it into a big media market. Absolutely. Super, super great to get it into a big media market. But there is a smaller barrier to entry when we're looking at getting it into local papers because they're not getting as, as many letters to the editor submitted um, because just by nature of it being a smaller market and a smaller paper. So as we're able to get those letters to the editor published in local papers. Um, it starts bringing the conversation around um, the entire state. And so you see larger media markets will 
often run a story that was originally run in a local paper, but they'll run it with more detail. They'll go into more depth because they have more resources. They have more journalists to dive deeper into that story, but they'll get a lot of their stories from local papers and they'll get a lot of that coverage from local papers because the local papers know what's going on. Um, in those communities. And so when we look at the letter to the editor campaigns, you have a much better chance of getting uh, your letter published into a local paper and then getting five or six local papers across the state publishing a similar letter. And that sparks the conversation for the Seattle Times or for any other larger media market. It also means that the office is seeing their boss's name mentioned six times instead of one time. And that has a bigger impact. Um, it might feel like, oh, you know, a Senate office doesn't care what a local paper is talking about, but that's absolutely not true because they're trying to hit every single part of the state to make sure that they're getting enough votes when it comes to their election to be able to win. And a local letter to the editor can actually have a really big impact on a precinct. I love it. It's it's so yeah. it's it's so smart. And, uh, you know, we've written a lot of LTEs here mm-hmm. in the States. Uh, and I just want to say to everybody who's watching, who's been writing them, you're superstars. Uh, I'm going to call out Roger Ledbetter in particular. Um, he is just uh, an extraordinary letter to the editor writer. Where can people learn? And we'll have resources for people uh, on the sh- in the show notes and also at IndivisiblePodcast.org. Where can people learn to write effective LTEs? Yeah, so we have a couple of resources at National um, that we've put together to help with the efforts um, of writing an LTE. It's a little bit of a learned practice, to be completely honest. You kind of have to just write from the heart and see what catches on. I will say uh, last week and the week before, several Washington Indivisibles had their letters to the editor published in local papers, specifically calling out Senators Campbell and Murray, specifically around the filibuster issue and democracy reform. So it's something that can absolutely be done in an act absolutely has an impact. Um, I will share with you some of the resources that we have online um, that will help guide in how to write your own letter to the editor. But we also have some templates that we've put together and we have an easy to use tool um, that we have put together through new mode where you simply put in your zip code It auto-populates a template for you. You can change the template around as much as you'd like, and it will send it off to the five closest newspapers to your zip code. There's also a function where you can search for a specific newspaper if you'd like, and if we have it in our tool, um, you can choose that one and send it in there. The nice thing about the template is, one, you don't have to Think about your own language for it. If you only have a limited amount of time, sending the template in is super critical. If a newspaper is getting 50 letters to the editor about the same issue, and they even have one of them that is um, written as a customized one, just getting those 50 means there are a lot of people that care about this issue. They'll pull the customized one out. But even if you sent a template, that had an impact on 
getting the issue to be recognized and getting that customized one to be selected. So really important, even if you can't write your own um, and customize it, just to submit it through our tool is super helpful. And I love how easy it makes it. Um, and it's a great intro to being able to write your own LTEs. Um, and like I say, I will have that information in the show notes for everybody. Um, you know, I'll just ask you, besides what happened with Senator Feinstein, do you think that we're seeing progress on eliminating the filibuster? Absolutely. So it's important to remember that um, Democrats have been on, in my opinion, the wrong side of the filibuster for pretty much the entire history of the filibuster. This isn't an issue that really is um, one that we as Democrats can like ride high on. Um, we have been in support of the filibuster. We've had Senate majority leaders change the rules of the filibuster that have made it much easier to filibuster and not have to do the talking filibuster. So we're really not on the right side of it, um, which is probably why it's a little bit harder for us to be chipping away at our, our Senate Dems to be in favor of eliminating the filibuster but we are seeing progress. So not only are we seeing folks move from the position of being opposed completely to ending the filibuster to being open to the conversation, we've also seen both the senators in Minnesota flip their position to be in favor of eliminating the filibuster. Uh, Senator Padilla came out in favor of eliminating the filibuster. Um, both of our recently elected Georgia senators are um, moving to being open to the conversation and being open to eliminating the filibuster. And even in Washington, um, we've seen a shift with uh, Senator Murray yep. being open to the conversation. So it is moving. Um, we've seen Senator Manchin be in favor of the talking filibuster as part of the conversation. And it feels like, oh, that's not enough. But when we look at people like Senator Feinstein, we at one point had her completely opposed category and we were able to move her move her and then finally to a place where um, we're in a good position to get her to be opposed to the filibuster in general. So it really is those kind of small wins, but we're seeing progress across the country. It feels like momentum. It really does feel yes. like the momentum is moving in that direction. Uh, something else that will most definitely take the filibuster uh, being eliminated is D.C. statehood. I wonder mm -hmm. if you could just tell us just briefly where you see D.C. statehood fitting in, because this is all about prioritizing today. And so we don't want to throw so much at, at listeners, but where do you yes. see D.C. statehood fitting in in terms of priorities? So D.C. statehood is extremely high for us as an organization. Um, as we look at who's in favor and who's not in favor, right? Um, in the House and in the Senate, the Washington delegation is is solidly in favor of the D.C. statehood bill um, from a Democratic side, right? Um, but what we need to look at in the framing for D.C. statehood is how do we get it across the finish line, similar to the For the People Act. And we know that the hurdle to getting it across the finish line in the Senate side is going to be the filibuster. But our first goal is to get it past the House side. So we have the D.C. statehood hearing is going to be up on, uh, I believe, next week, April 14th, is going to be the first day that D.C. statehood gets a hearing in the House. And we've been told that it will 
be put to a floor vote by the 19th. Uh, that's the goal. We're hoping that it stays on track for that. We know that there is always a possibility for it to get pushed, um, but we are confident that by the 19th, it will have a full House vote and it will pass the House of Representatives. It then moves over into the Senate side where it sits as a high priority with the For the People Act. And the difference between the two, in my opinion, is really what they do. So when we look at DC statehood, it's a really hard issue to have like opposition to, right? Like you have to get really petty with your opposition to DC statehood. And we're oh, hearing but Republicans things, specialize in pettiness. You know, so, you know yeah, like yeah. we're hearing things that are are really interesting arguments against DC statehood. For example, DC doesn't have a car dealership within the DC limits. How could it possibly be a state? I mean, could you even make the argument like with a straight face, right? But but we're yeah. hearing it. And so what we're trying to do is continue on with the framing for DC statehood, continue on with showing why it's extremely important that we get true representation for the 700,000 plus people that live in DC. The majority of them are working class people. We're talking about nurses and um restaurant industry employees, hotel industry employees, people who are our neighbors, people who are in our community. It's not just a bunch of politicians. It's actually mostly working class people. And it's a high, high percentage of black voters in America. And they do not have a voice. And so DC statehood is a high priority. But as we look at it from a Washington perspective, the conversation should be framed around getting rid of the filibuster so that DC statehood can pass. Because if we're talking to our Washington legislators about um, being in support of DC statehood, they already are. And so their response is gonna be, oh, I'm already a co-sponsor of it. And that kind of brings the conversation to a halt, right? And so if we talk about it in, you need to show your support for DC statehood by be, be, being um, against keeping the filibuster, that is how we frame the conversation for them to show their true support for DC statehood. Because if you know that it's not a bill that can pass with the filibuster in place, then it's really easy to be in support of it. And to be clear, this would not be something that would go through with a, a democracy legislation only filibuster removal, or would it? It would depend how they frame the reform for, for the filibuster, right? Um, there is conversation about having it just be for things that are voting rights. And you can make an argument for DC statehood being a part of, you know, a, a, under that voting rights umbrella, right? Um, there's conversation about having it be entirely for all democracy reform issues. But then the, you know, the argument is, well, what constitutes a democracy reform issue, right? right. Uh, so it will depend on how they frame that filibuster reform, but we're still pushing for getting rid of it in general. It is arcane. It was put in place to suppress the black vote in America, um, and it has already been abolished in the House of Representatives in the 1800s. So it's a little bit um, ridiculous that we're still talking about it in 2021 um, for the Senate. <laughs> 
Here, here. Uh, I want to talk about a few things that are going to be down the road a little bit at the risk of uh, working at counter purposes, cross purposes uh, to what this episode is supposed to be about, which is prioritization and clarity. I do want to touch on Biden's American jobs plan, the two trillion dollar infrastructure plan. And specifically, I want to frame it this way. Um, I want to talk about the Thrive Agenda. This is an infrastructure proposal backed by uh, Indivisible and the Green New Deal Network. Um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the Thrive Agenda and its relationship to Biden's infrastructure plan. Definitely. So if you are on our email list, you've been getting tons of emails from us about the Thrive Agenda. And it's a really important uh, package of legislation that we are pushing for with a coalition of other grassroots partners, pretty much everybody you can think of, um, Move On, Movement for Black Lives, like really just all of the folks who have been leading this, this grassroots progressive charge, they're on this coalition. So it's an important issue. It looks at what we can do as a country to recover from this last year and really from a lot of the damage that we've done uh, as a society in the years past. So it, it's it's forward looking, right? We're still technically in the pandemic. We're still in a relief period, but we're going to shift quickly into a recovery period. And the Thrive Agenda wants to tackle a lot of those overlapping crises that uh, exist with mass unemployment, racial injustice, the public health crisis, and climate change. What I want to be clear about right now is that there is no binding piece of legislation yet introduced around the Thrive Act. So we have a resolution that has been introduced. That's the Thrive Resolution. Um, that is a non-binding resolution in the House that essentially says these are ideas that we are committed to and these are things that we believe in. But there isn't yet a binding piece of legislation. We are hoping that we'll see a Thrive Act, uh, like a proposed bill, uh, sometime early April. Um, and we know that Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, sorry, has said that she wants something around the Thrive Act passed by July 4th. Uh, so we have a bit of a timeline. It is coming fast, but we're looking right now at the democracy reform issues that we just talked about, and that's DC statehood and the For the People Act. So the Thrive Agenda is coming. The Biden administration released the American Jobs Plan. This is part one of his Build Back Better plan, and we think it's generally great. Um, it is aligned pretty closely with the Thrive Agenda. It covers mostly physical infrastructure issues, and it is fairly broad in its scope. So some really exciting takeaways from it. Um, it ends fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, it has strong labor protections, including passing the PRO Act, which I know most of you have heard about. Um, it establishes a civilian climate core. Um, it aims for 100% broadband coverage, which is something that in Washington is very important to yeah. folks. 
It does fall short, however. Um, there are some areas where we wish it would be strengthened. So the American Jobs Plan only invests $2.3 trillion over the next eight years. Uh, the coalition of groups working on the Thrive Agenda know that that is not enough. We need at least $1 trillion every year for the next 10 years to provide true recovery for our country. It also is broken up into two parts. We don't love that. We would love for one big recovery bill that addresses all of it, but we understand sometimes things have to get chopped up to be able to be passed. Um, and lastly, really important, it doesn't address or mention indigenous sovereignty at all in the American Jobs Plan. That's something that we are extremely adamant about, as is the Coalition for the Thrive Agenda. So we're working to try to make sure that the Thrive Act that will eventually be introduced uh, fills those gaps. But also important to mention that a Biden administration plan is just that. It's just a plan. Um, it's not a piece of legislation that is binding. So really the work has to be in the House to produce a Thrive Act that builds on the plan that the Biden administration put forward. And we're confident that the Congressional Progressive Caucus will be able to get that done. Well, with uh, um, margins uh, as uh, narrow margins. as they are, uh, the progressives absolutely have a seat at the table on this one. And thank you for taking the time to lay all that out, by the way. Uh, it's it's complicated stuff, and it's good to know specifically where Indivisible stands. As you say, we're going to keep our eyes right now on democracy reform, but that is forthcoming, and we know, because you're awesome, that you will keep us up to date on everything having to do with the Thrive Agenda. I want to end by very quickly talking about the legislature. So in my show notes for everybody, I'm going to be linking to legislation that Indivisibles are advocating for before the 11th deadline, April 11th. Uh, but there's one that we are pushing against, and that is what some are calling the bad Washington Privacy Act. This is SB 5062. Just very briefly, what can you tell us about this bill? And then what can you uh, say about what people have been doing to, quote unquote, uh, fix it or nix it? Yes. The state legislature in Washington heard several privacy bills this year. Um, there were two that stood out. One was the good privacy bill, and this was being pushed for by the ACLU of Washington and the Tech Equity Coalition, which several indivisibles in Washington are a part of. Uh, the second bill was the bad privacy bill. And unfortunately, this one has made its way through to the end of the state legislature. There are several provisions in there that allow for or uh, corporations to um, misuse and mishandle your private information. And it really does impact the privacy rights that we should all be holding near and dear to our heart as we shift to a more tech forward and um, you know virtual world, um, especially with the developments from this last year with the COVID pandemic. So as we are more shifting our lives online, we need to make sure that the bills that are in place and the protections that are in place really do look at our protections, not uh, the protections of corporations. And this one, unfortunately, is a very corporate forward bill. Um, it's also unfortunate that it actually has really widespread support from Democrats in the Washington state legislature. And um, I 
I have speculations as to why that is. I won't air them here. Um, but what I will say is that our our partners at the ACLU of Washington um, and several other progressive groups on the ground know that this bill is bad and they've been pushing really, really hard for it to either be fixed or to be completely thrown out. Our Washington Indivisibles have been right there with them in this fight. And where they're at right now is it's past the Appropriations Committee, it's in the Rules Committee now, and uh, Representative Kloba is proposing an amendment that will essentially be uh, a rewrite of the entire bill. So it's an amendment that will uh, get rid of most of the language that's in there and fix it in the way that uh, we feel is acceptable. We don't know how much of a chance that amendment has of being passed as of right now. But what we do know is if folks start putting pressure on their um, state representatives, then we will be able to get enough support for the amendment that it could be passed, or we can get enough support for getting rid of the bill if the amendment doesn't pass. Again, as you mentioned, it has to be by Sunday, um, April 11th, because of the way that the calendar for the state legislature works. We are hoping that this bill doesn't even see the light of day. We're hoping it doesn't even make it to the floor for a vote. Um, but if it does, it really has to include this amendment. And I am encouraging you all and urging you all to stand with your fellow indivisibles who have been working on this. They are experts on this field. They have been working with the Tech Equity Coalition for months on trying to get this bill squashed. And they need your support right now and they need your help because um, it's, it's just gonna take uh, an entire village to do this. Absolutely right. And we have a number of privacy experts who are working uh, very, very hard on this. And yeah, they need your support. So again, I have information for that for everybody, both at invisiblepodcast.org and also in the show notes uh, on social media. So to summarize, uh, we are focusing on S1, D.C. statehood, killing the filibuster at the federal level. We are also going to be focusing on the Thrive Agenda, but that's down the line. And then here at home, we are either going to fix or kill the bad Washington Privacy Act. How'd mm -hmm. I do? <laughs> Did I get it? Great. Yeah. And, you know, if if I were to say one thing about how to prioritize your time, right? Because yeah. we all have such limited time. Um, in Washington, your members are good on D.C. statehood. They are good on the For the People Act. So if you're going to be talking about either of those democracy reform bills, talk about it in terms of the filibuster, because that is how you're going to be able to get them to move and get real progress on it. It also puts into, puts into perspective where your time should be spent, right? Um, you don't have to call every day asking your representative to support the For the People Act. They already do um, if they're one of the Democrats. And um, you don't have to call your senator every day to ask them to support DC statehood. They already do. So let's be strategic about our time. Let's be um, working smarter, not harder. And um, frame everything we can in terms of the filibuster so we can keep moving them forward. Perfectly put. What a great way to end it. Yeah. Nina Musabi, you are a rock star. I so appreciate talking with you as always. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Keep up the great work, everybody. 
And that is it for this week's show. Thank you again to Nina Musabi. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Cowell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.